she'd been told that her breast milk was poison. The controversy around the marketing practices of formula milk companies started back in the 1970s. That led to the code, the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes. Now, a new investigation on bmj.com looks at marketing around milk substitution, this time for a specific condition, cow milk protein allergy. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And to talk about that, I'm joined in the studio by Chris Van Tulliken, honorary senior lecturer at University College London, who's been investigating this. Also by Jennifer Richardson, the BMJ's features editor. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. That's a real pleasure. And Jen, welcome to the studio for the first time. Thanks. Um, So, Chris, as I said at the beginning, you know, what happened in the 70s is perhaps what people think about immediately when they hear about marketing for formula milk. Um, This is slightly different. So what is it exactly that you were looking at here? So this this might appear at first glance to be quite obscure. So the, the, the condition that the piece is focused on is non-IgE mediated cow's milk protein allergy and particularly in exclusively breastfed infants. But um, this is fairly typical of uh, the kind of practices that we're seeing around the globe uh, from some of the largest infant formula companies. And it's a huge industry worth uh, almost 50 or probably north of 50 billion US dollars a year. Mm. So um, there are two problems. There's the sort of straightforward problem of the risk of possible overdiagnosis of a, of a condition. And overdiagnosis is harmful in all kinds of ways. It's harmful to the person being overdiagnosed. It's very expensive. It wastes resources. It neglects their real problems. But there's another much larger problem with this, which is that um, this condition is creating a network of influences for the industry with, uh, with the profession that are potentially much more damaging in a wider sense. Mm, okay. You mentioned a little bit about the kids that we're, we're talking about here. Who specifically are we? Uh, is this focused on? So uh, cow's milk protein allergy is a real condition and it causes um, a, a certain amount of morbidity uh, in young children who are drinking, usually infants who are drinking formula. There is... Uh, an idea in the guidelines that there are there are two types. There's the rapid onset uh, classic allergy, an IgE-mediated phenomenon where uh, kids get symptoms very closely associated with ingestion of the antigen. Mm-hmm. So they drink the milk, and within two minutes to half an hour, they develop wheeze, hives, rashes, symptoms, unwellness. So, uh, and you can then diagnose IgE-mediated allergies using blood tests, and they're usually clinically quite straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's this non-IgE-mediated allergy that's more complicated, and that's what we're focused on. So, um, uh, there is an idea that in an exclusively breastfed infant, if a mother ingests, uh, in this case, a dairy product, that antigenic uh, parts of proteins can get into her breast milk and cause symptoms 
in her child that are allergy and so that then needs to be treated either by totally excluding dairy from the maternal diet or by switching the child from breast milk to a specialist formula. And there's a range of different formula products where the proteins in the formulas from the cow's milk have been broken down. They've either been hydrolyzed or uh, broken down into their constituent amino acids. Mm. So these, these are formulas without any allergens in them at all. And um, the crucial thing, I, I guess, to understand is that that basic evidence about whether or not a child can have a true non-IgE-mediated allergy when they are only drinking breast milk is really limited. It's not entirely missing, but it's fairly poor. So we know that if, if uh, and, and anyone who's breastfed or been part of a, a breastfeeding dyad or triad um, knows this, that what the mother eats will affect infant behaviour. And I would choose that word behaviour very carefully so as to not pathologize it. If mother eats a different diet, we know that if we restrict allergens very severely in a mother's diet, then infants behave differently. They may cry less, they may have less colic, less flatus, less arching of the back, they may sleep differently. That's not the same as saying it's definitely an allergy. And the evidence that maternal diet can induce allergy is quite weak. I think one of the really crucial bits of evidence is that um, there is very, very little uh, IgE-mediated allergy reported for breast milk uh, for for cow's milk in exclusively breastfed infants. In other words, the easy to diagnose mm -hmm. one, which you might expect to be seen at quite a high rate, um, it doesn't really seem to be present. There are some case reports of fish allergies and I think nut allergies in the literature of these very rapid onset of allergies. But when you look at them closely, of course. Um, just because the child breastfed, it doesn't mean that, that it, the, the antigen was in the breast milk. It might be the antigen in the environment where you know you need very small amounts of protein. So that's a, a peculiar hole in the evidence that we don't see these rapid onset of allergies very much with, with cow's milk protein. The other, um, so, so, so at that sort of most basic level of the disease, are we absolutely certain that antigen in maternal breast milk can cause non-IgE-mediated or cell-mediated allergy in an infant? I would say the evidence for that is not absence, but absent, but but fairly limited. And yet, despite that absence of evidence, we're seeing an increase in the number of children who are being prescribed. Um, the the formula, the specialised formula that you were talking about, uh, and that's increased quite dramatically. We're seeing a spectacular increase in prescriptions and spending. So uh, prescriptions going from around a hundred thousand per year to five hundred thousand per year. Spending going from five and a bit million to you know over sixty million. So gigantic you know multi you know log increases of of spending and prescriptions and those are just the nhs prescriptions that doesn't include uh the people who are buying the products themselves over the counter or private prescriptions which may account for even more and we haven't seen a corresponding increase in the ig mediated allergen allergy so at the same time in the non ig mediated mediated cmpa calcium protein allergy no no we haven't um Epidemiological data are really scarce. Some of the, the guideline papers put it at around 1% to 3% in non 
breastfed infants. There's no really good epidemiological data on breastfed infants. The reason, one of the reasons I think there isn't really good data is there isn't a diagnostic test. To diagnose it, you have to exclude the antigen from the mother or from the child if they're having formula and then wait several weeks and then reintroduce. And that cycle um, is quite hard to complete. The other thing to say is that the symptoms associated with it are really vague and that's one of the that's one of the things I can talk about a bit with the guidelines. Mm. So no, we, we don't see the epidemiology matching up with the prescriptions. Now, if you, what you might say is, oh, but 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 maybe we we missed all this stuff ten years ago. We missed all this cow's milk protein allergy. And now what's brilliant is that all these children who were previously untreated are now getting treated. It's quite hard to believe that 90% of children with this condition went undiagnosed 10 years ago. That's that's really hard to believe. Um, at its worst, these conditions are very severe. If you keep giving antigen to cell-mediated allergies, they will typically not improve drastically. Um, and children can fail to thrive and have quite severe symptoms. So it's it's hard to believe we were really failing to diagnose this huge number of children. And it's very hard to believe that we've seen a tenfold increase in actual cases. That would be unlike uh, almost any other disease in history. I mean, m maybe at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, but that, that would be the kind of, you know, inf spread of infection that we'd be looking at. Okay. So... As you kind of mentioned, this it maybe sounds a bit obscure, but you're obviously saying that, that it isn't. It's something that we do need to be concerned about. What was it that inspired you to, to tackle this particular topic? So I think there are three things. I'm a, I'm a new dad, so I'm I, not so new anymore. While I was writing the article, I was fairly new dad. So uh, I've got an 18-month-old daughter, so I've been immersed in... A breastfeeding project in my own household and that focuses the mind um, and I made a documentary for the BBC called The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs where we looked at a series of examples um, particularly in, in medicine of childhood where conditions may be overtreated and where the evidence for treatment is quite weak and there was a brilliant blog post written by a GP called Johnny Coates um, uh, called This Milk Tastes Sour, where he just pointed out that there seemed to be a lot of industry influence. So I think he's responsible for that initial catalytic thought. Um, and since then, I've, you know, as a parent, I've excluded dairy from my own child. So I've, I've been through this sort of strange process of even as I'm writing an article saying, I think this is a condition that is overdiagnosed and overtreated, by reading the industry websites and all the, the available literature, I myself have come to worry about it. And I think I surely must be one of the people in the world least likely to be susceptible. But that's how vulnerable we are to this kind of message. So, yeah, it was, it was probably Johnny Coates' blog that really, really kicked it off. And therefore, you obviously had a, an idea of what you were what you were looking at and what you thought you might find when you investigated this issue further. But was there anything that kind of surprised you about what you found doing the investigation? So I, I think I approached it. So I'd, I'd previously made a documentary series about the area of overdiagnosis. So I was, I was prepped for behaviour from industry that maybe went outside what, what might be considered ethically acceptable or good practice. Um, 
every single stage of this story has amazed and shocked me. I think this is the most egregious example of of this kind of practice that I have ever come across. And so that that made it um, uh, that made me very passionate to try and communicate this very robustly on the page. So the I guess you want specific examples. The first thing I did for the documentary was go to an educational uh, conference as a doctor. I signed up to go and film at one. And uh, I spent the day with some excellent people giving some great talks. And at the end of the day, uh, I was given a uh, Danon notebook, a Danon nutrition notebook, a huge packet of information, a pen, and my certificate had the logo of the hospital that the the had helped organize the conference, the Royal College of GPs, and but it was signed on behalf of Danon who had funded the event. And so that was the first experience of going, um, there is a kind of shamelessness about this that speaks to a culture where it is utterly normal for the formula industry to fund uh, postgraduate medical education. That, that, that set the, the stage. And then looking into it, real understanding how the, the WHO code works, um, the extent to which that isn't protected by law, and then understanding how at every level this is funded by industry. So whether it's the basic laboratory research coming out of industry institutes through to the uh, research that influences the guidelines, through to the funding of guidelines themselves, funding of the guideline authors, funding of the authors of the NICE guideline committee, through to the, dis the dissemination of those guidelines to patients and doctors through industry websites and through educational institutes and programs funded by industry. And then at the top of the pile, the Royal Colleges of GPs and uh, especially the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health taking money from the formula industry and self-policing whether or not this is a violation of those WHO rules. So it, there was there is no aspect of this story that isn't uh, funded by uh, multiple aspects of the formula industry and that that surprised me yeah mm. and I think the the investigation really paints that picture of the kind of the web of networks um, between formula and and the profession uh, as you say at all levels but the other thing that's quite affecting I think in the in the BMJ investigation that you've written is uh, some parent perspectives um, some examples speaking to parents what was it like or what impact did it have for you talking to parents who'd been affected by this? Uh, th there was one parent in particular where I, I really, um, uh, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be ashamed, I was I was almost moved to, I had a lump in my throat listening to her. She, she was describing, um, she'd been told that her breast milk was poison by a, a clinician who we don't name, who um, has very close links to industry. And so she had been advised to stop breastfeeding switched to a specialist formula and she described tried, trying to feed her child this formula and the formula is very unpalatable they're very foul smelling and the child uh, rejecting this bottle and, and desperately trying to sort of pull her shirt up and, and reaching for the breast and I think if you've got a, a young child at home and you understand they, they're very hard to feed sometimes and they that's the thing that motivates them most of all it, that was quite painful to listen to and that was a story that just came up in one form or another again and again the idea that breast milk was harming a child um, and the the conflict that that puts a mother in so I interviewed Natalie Schenker who runs a milk bank she received several calls a week from mothers who believe their breast milk is harming their child 
and they want to keep expressing and put it into a milk bank. And she describes that when you stop breastfeeding, when you don't want to, when you're not ready, for many women that is experienced as a physiological bereavement. So the body interprets that as the baby having died. And so that's strongly linked to postnatal depression. So speaking to mothers and scientists and clinicians who work very closely with these parents was was really affecting. Mm. I mean, you mentioned there a little bit about guidelines and what patients are being told. Um, What do the guidelines actually say? What's the education that's pushed out actually encouraging people to do about testing and, and treatment? I think the most striking thing about about really there's there's one guideline called the MAP guideline. It's a milk allergy and primary care guideline, and it's produced. It was there are two variations of it. It was produced by a sort of subset of the Nice guideline authors, and every single person on that guideline has declared uh, links to industry. And so when you get to the diagnostic criteria for when you should consider this as a diagnosis in an infant. Um, the list of symptoms are so close to being a normal child, it would be next to impossible to exclude any child. Uh, things like colic. I mean, colic is a notoriously vague uh, set of problems, you know, likely due to intestinal gas, potential abdominal pain, arching of the back. Then loose stool, overly solid stool, um, crying, irritability. These... You know, this is most children. It is an abnormal child that doesn't have all of these symptoms, non-specific rashes. Um, And it isn't like there's a very clear, validated, uh, if your child has five of ten and uh, they go on for three weeks, um, then there's a diagnosis. It's just many of these will be present and refractory to treatment. So you have this list of symptoms that describes a fairly normal child and then um, you uh, exclude dairy from your own diet as a parent or from from the the child's diet. You put them onto a specialist formula, which will be hard. Some people will find it easy, but for most people, breastfeeding is a struggle. Every mother I spoke to who had tried to dairy exclude, unless they were already a vegan, um, struggled with that. Dairy is in everything. So you then add a load to the already very difficult task of breastfeeding in modern Britain, um, or you try and switch your infant from the formula that they don't mind to a to a new formula which they very possibly won't like. To complete the diagnosis, what you then have to do is carefully monitor symptoms, which in an unblinded condition as a mother or a father, you're, you're going to find hard. We know that biases creep in. And then if the symptoms get better, which there may well be a regression to the mean because we know that happens. That's why we design trials the way we do. Um, you then, after your child's got better, to be certain, you have to reintroduce the thing that you think is harming them. You have to start taking dairy again yourself. or you re- Now, th- that is not a thing that usually happens in primary care. So I spoke to a number of GPs who said, yeah, no, they, it's very hard to persuade people to go back and complete that final crucial bit of diagnosis. And to do it in a way that's that would generate robust epidemiology, that would be believable, that is placebo-controlled, is essentially impossible. And so that's why that that going back to that question of is is this a real problem? I think there are there are real questions about this, and there isn't there isn't good science backing it up. Mm. I mean, it strikes me listening to that that um, as you said yourself, uh, if you're in that position and you give up dairy, or you by the time that's gone through, you're already a 
chunk through the the amount of time you'll be best feeding for. Then you've got this whole process. You know, it would be incredibly hard to to go back and and reintroduce dairy or or, or just fight against this potential diagnosis because it's time limited and you know all the other pressures that are on you as a parent. And and most of this, the problems of infant behaviour, all of the problems of it, of having a new breastfeeding child, whether it's the sleeplessness or the colic or the irritability, the crying, it all gets better. You know, parents get better at the breastfeeding and, and children start sleeping more and they just get bigger and more robust. And, and so part of that process is likely to, you are over any four week period, symptoms in general, behaviours in general will become easier. Um, parents, in my experience, I, I think almost every parent would say that if something appears to be working, you almost never go and revisit that. We have a lucky sleeping bag, you know. I mean, you, you reach levels of insanity about all this stuff. So the idea that having found a food that worked, you would then go and try and re-challenge and start the allergy again. I, I know I wouldn't, and I, I think that is, the, that is the report of most primary care doctors that I speak to. Mm. I mean, this seems like a classic over-diagnosis, over-treatment thing that you know people listening to this podcast have about a lot. <laughs> we bang that drum a lot. <laughs> we do. Um, what do you think this is doing for for those kids um, or the parents of those kids who have a genuine cow milk allergy? Um, I think it doesn't do anyone any good to overdiagnose. I, I think the, the idea that in order to catch everyone, we need to overdiagnose and overtreat a few people is absolute rubbish. That the 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 state of the science in this area is so poor, is so limited that to defend the the astounding number of guidelines and their involvement with the industry that profits from the advice by saying, well, it's just really important that we treat everyone is indefensible when the money and the time hasn't been spent on understanding the pathogenesis, on understanding the basic epidemiology, on understanding frankly any aspect of this no one has any idea of the mechanism so so the the defense of i find that a really kind of repulsive allegation that what i what i'm what i would love to see is some really good independent basic research in this area and i'm sure that um you know this is a serious condition and there is a medical research council and there is the wellcome trust and there is there are plenty of other independent funding bodies who would love to fund something like this there'd be plenty of basic research opportunities totally divorced from industry but no one seeks them out and no one campaigns for independent education either so I think the situation as it exists at the moment is extremely bad for children with cow's milk protein allergy and children without. It is the worst of all worlds. Um, what I was going to mention just there is um, you obviously, this issue around um, the problem of overdiagnosis and its knock-on impact on breastfeeding is a key issue in the investigation. But another one is actually around um, how uh, cow's milk protein allergy is potentially being used as you put it a sort of trojan horse for um the formula industry to extend its um links um into the um pediatric profession in particular but also other healthcare professionals who, who are all involved with um mothers and babies um and one of the the, the issues that comes up in the investigation is this what constitutes a breast milk substitute mm. Can you explain that a, li- a little bit in terms of the WHO code? Well, so there's this, 
there's a whole chunk of the article that isn't there that which is intensely nerdy about the code and um so i spent a lot of time sort of going between who lawyers and people who are uh involved with industry trying to hammer out what the meaning of the code is uh the crucial thing that several let me see if i can put this clearly several of the people who are involved in industry-funded education use a justification which is that the education is only about specialist formulas and this is what the royal college of pediatrics child health say this is what the allergy academy say this is what several clinicians say they say we're not talking about breast milk substitutes, so it falls outside of the code. Now, a breast milk substitute is one of the few bits of the code that is unequivocal. It is anything that will replace breast milk um, and for a long period of the child's life. So I, I think it is up to the age of uh, two years. But certainly the specialist feeds are unequivocally breast milk substitutes and everyone at the World Health Organization is clear about that. But the second thing is that the code says that you can't have education funded on, on hospital premises um, by the manufacturers of breast milk substitutes. So it doesn't matter if Danon are there talking about, you know, grown-up food they are a manufacturer of a breast milk substitute and as such they are not allowed according to the code and to the baby friendly initiative standards to fund education on hospital premises and they should not be trying to generate any conflicts of interest so number one the products are yes they are breast milk substitutes and, and everyone who's independent agrees on that and number two it's about the company not about the product itself so th that bit of slipperiness feels to me um, I think we answer that very robustly. But more importantly, why are the why is the the number one health professional association for paediatricians in this in this country trying to find sort of technicalities around the code? That's not the spirit of the code. The code also has a spirit, and the spirit of the code is let's avoid the kind of situation which has emerged now, not find ways of excusing it. And I think particularly the Royal College has, uh, according to my sources at the World Health Organization and former World Health Organization employees, uh, they, they, have, they are really, really flying in the face of the code. And they, sh they should be protecting it, not undermining it. In other areas around this investigation, the conversations you've had have actually led to some, some slightly more positive outcomes, or at least the promise of some positive outcomes, haven't they? Yes, I'm very nervous always to sort of trumpet um, positive outcomes before they actually happen because it lets people off the hook. But I've had some really positive discussions at St Mary's and Imperial with the paediatrics team there. And um, the Allergy Academy is no longer going to hold its courses on St Thomas's uh, grounds. Um, and we are hoping to open a dialogue with the Royal College and of uh, Paediatrics and stop them uh, accepting money from the formula industry and Sheffield Children's Hospital have also said that they will look at being more adherent to the code so I'm but, but there's that the question of kind of what needs to happen in a sense when you try and codify and enshrine these things in black and white you create ways of people being able to undermine them and the more clear you make things the more detailed the easier it is to get around them 
And what needs to happen is a gigantic cultural shift. And we've seen that happen a bit with the pharmaceutical industry, that it's no longer acceptable either in law or kind of ethically for doctors to accept a pen. It would be weird if I sat in one of my meetings with a pharma mug or a pharma pen. People would think that was odd. My colleagues would. And that's the kind of transformation that needs to happen. Yeah. um, That's actually one of the the things that um, Fiona Godley, the editor-in-chief of the BMJ, calls for in a piece that um, accompanies the investigation um, in the BMJ this week, which is to um, put the code um, into UK law. Um, And I should also say at this point that another thing that that article mentions is the fact that the BMJ itself does accept advertising from um, the formula industry. And um, one of the potential outcomes from the investigation is that we are re-looking at our own policies around what we accept and what we won't. And um, we're interested in readers' views on what that should be and um, are looking to report back next year. I thought that piece that Fiona wrote was probably the most positive thing that anyone has responded to this article with formula is a a difficult product because it it does save lives and that is the foot in the door for pushing it toward everyone that we we can't ban the industry it's not like cigarettes or gambling or alcohol where you really want to say this this can't happen it's that it, it is needed and it must be high quality and that's why the royal college needs independence to police and codify and set the culture around that relationship so tightly. That actually brings me to something that um, you might want to talk about a bit, which is um, any suggestion that this investigation might lead to um, that this kind of um, questioning of what the formula industry is doing is another way to um, shame uh, mothers um, particularly around uh, not breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, I was so happy when we stopped breastfeeding as a, as a family because as a father I could be involved. It meant my wife could go back to work. We stopped having all the hassle with the pumps. Everything, life got easier. Um, breastfeeding is a very difficult thing for women in uh, in the 21st century and it is it is quite... Um, it's, it's anti-progressive in a lot of ways. And uh, if you stick your head above the parapet and you start as a man supporting breastfeeding, it does look like you are in some way marginalising women's ability to choose. What I feel very strongly is that I would desperately like women to make their own choices and I, have n- I just don't care at all if people want to use formula milk. What I care about is that the choice they make is influenced by independent evidence and is not being influenced by... Um, some extremely clever uh, marketing from from a gigantic industry. So this is not in any way about shaming women or limiting choice. It is about improving choice for women. You've been listening to Chris Van Tulliken and Jennifer Richardson talk about the new investigation just published on bmj.com. Overdiagnosis and industry influence. How cow's milk protein allergy is extending the reach of infant formula manufacturers. As I said, that article is available on bmj.com, along with the editorial that Jen mentioned. And if you have an opinion on whether the BMJ should be carrying adverts from formula manufacturers, please do let us know via the rapid responses there. That's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon with another one of our evidence roundups. 
until then, have a look on bmj.com slash podcast where you'll find all of our back catalogue. That's hundreds of episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>